This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day, I'm Matt Graham and welcome to episode 35 of AFF On Air, the podcast where we talk about frequent flyer points and, at least for the time being anyway, reminisce about the good old days when we're allowed to travel. And of course we also look forward to a time when we can all travel once again. In episode 33, I spoke to one of the Australians that became stuck in Peru after the country called a sudden and unprecedented lockdown. In this episode, I speak to the man who brought all of those Australians together. Gus Higgins created the Aussies in Peru Facebook group shortly after the lockdown was called in Peru, and he tells me all about it, as well as his experience getting back to Australia in this episode. Also coming up later in the podcast, it's a country that intrigues many of us, yet few are actually able to visit it. This country had strict border control measures in place well before COVID-19 made them cool. I'm talking, of course, about North Korea. What's it like to travel there, and should you put it on your list of places to visit once the restrictions are lifted? That's coming up later in the episode, but first, here's what's making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And of course, the big news from the past two weeks is Virgin Australia going into voluntary administration. There was some speculation a few weeks ago when the last podcast went out that this could happen, and on Monday of last week it did finally happen, after the federal government refused to provide Virgin Australia with the $1.4 billion loan that it was asking for. Deloitte has been appointed as voluntary administrator. Virgin Australia is not in liquidation and continues to operate scheduled flights. The administrators were called in early, Virgin says, to give the airline the best chance of restructuring its $6.8 billion of debt and finding a new owner for the business. So far, around 20 parties have expressed interest in buying the airline. The administrator is asking for non-binding offers by the middle of May and for binding offers by June, and they're hoping to complete the sale of Virgin by the end of June. But what Virgin Australia will look like in the future, where it flies, its branding and the business model it operates under, will very much depend on those new owners. There is some speculation that Virgin could retreat from trying to chase corporate market share and return instead to a low-cost carrier model like it had back in the days of Virgin Blue. Or perhaps it will go for a hybrid model, which is kind of a mix between uh, full service and low cost. It's also possible that Virgin could axe many or even all of its international flights, instead focusing on the domestic market. And it's unlikely that Tiger Air will return in any way. The $6.8 billion that Virgin Australia owes to creditors is more than originally thought. Much of that money is owed to secure lenders and bondholders, but around 9,000 Virgin Australia employees are collectively owed around $450 million. It's also emerged that the trust backing the value of Velocity Points is owed around $150 million by Virgin Australia in the form of a secured loan. Velocity Frequent Flyer is run as a separate business entity to the airline and is not in administration, but redemptions of, uh, within the Velocity Frequent Flyer program have been paused. You can still earn Velocity Points for the time being, but it's not possible to currently redeem them. Velocity points will not expire during the pause period. The validity of existing velocity points will be extended for however long this pause goes for. This follows a run on velocity points that had been happening before the administration was announced as news of Virgin's precarious financial situation became public knowledge. On the evening before Virgin went into administration, there was so much traffic on the Velocity Reward Store website that it kept crashing. 
In the meantime, several Australian bank loyalty programs have suspended the transfer of points temporarily to Velocity Frequent Flyer. American Express Membership Rewards, ANZ Rewards, NAB Rewards, Westpac Altitude Rewards, the St George Amplify Program, as well as HSBC Rewards Plus, have all suspended the transfer of points to Velocity while the administration is ongoing. Virgin Australia Travel Bank credits remain valid and can still be redeemed to book new Virgin Australia flights, but refunds have been paused while the company is in administration. Virgin's policy was not to give a refund for cancelled flights anyway unless the original fare rules permitted refunds. Virgin Australia, as well as Qantas, Jetstar and regional airlines including Regional Express and Air North, continue to operate domestic flights with the federal government's backing. But it's not quite business as usual. Most airlines are now blocking all middle seats to enable social distancing on board. Let's be honest, no one really likes sitting in the middle seat anyway. And uh, Rex has taken this a step further, introducing temperature checks at the check-in counters. Overseas, more airlines have also started requiring all passengers on board flights to wear a mask. Virgin Australia and Jetstar have suspended their buy-on-board food services. Qantas and Virgin are now giving all passengers packaged snacks and water instead of meals. And Jetstar is providing no cabin service whatsoever. In business class, Qantas passengers are now receiving just a snack box and water, and in Virgin, the uh, limited catering in business class is at least being supplemented with a full range of drinks. No in-flight entertainment is available on Australian domestic flights at the moment, and most airlines have also removed the in-flight magazines. Airport lounges remain closed. Virgin Australia, meanwhile, has joined the Qantas Club in giving a six-month extension to lounge members with paid memberships. As we enter the month of May, most of the international repatriation flights being operated by Qantas and Virgin Australia are now coming to an end, but there are still 13 airlines operating regular passenger flights to and from Australia. Air New Zealand is still flying a few times a week each from Auckland to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, and United is still flying daily between Sydney and San Francisco. Qatar Airways is retaining services from Doha to Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, although its Brisbane flight has now ended. China Airlines is still operating flights a few times a week from Taipei to three Australian cities. And Air New Guinea is still flying from Port Moresby to both Brisbane and Cairns. I'm not quite sure uh, how many passengers they're getting on that uh, five-weekly Boeing 767 service from Port Moresby to Brisbane, but it is still operating. I hope there's a lot of cargo on there. Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Scoot, Royal Brunei, Garuda Indonesia, and All Nippon Airways are also still operating some commercial passenger flights to Australia during the month of May. And there's a full list of flights in the AFF article, which I've linked in the episode notes. If you don't like flying on a small turboprop aircraft such as the Dash 8, spare a thought for the passengers on a recent Air Greenland repatriation flight. The Dash 8 200 series aircraft, which seats a maximum of 37 passengers, flew for 7 hours and 52 minutes non-stop from Copenhagen in Denmark to Nook, Greenland. The plane didn't even have an extra fuel tank. It was able to operate the flight because it was simply very light. There were only a small handful of passengers and no cargo. This flight would normally make a refueling stop in Iceland. In other news, Latam Airlines has now left the One World Alliance. 
Latam Airlines retains extensive partnerships with some One World member airlines, including Qantas. Qantas frequent flyer members can continue to earn and redeem Qantas points on Latam flights going forward. However, you'll no longer be able to include them as part of a One World Round the World ticket or a One World Classic flight reward booked using Qantas points. Qantas has promised that its frequent flyers will continue to earn status credits for Latam flights until the end of September, which is when Latam originally had announced it would leave the One World Alliance. But this is just a special and temporary benefit for Qantas frequent flyer members. And, well, let's be honest, it's unlikely that many Australians are going to be flying on Latam between now and September anyway, as the borders are closed. Beyond October 2020, you'll only earn Qantas status credits for code share flights booked with a Qantas or QF flight number. For Latam marketed flights with an LA flight number, you'll still earn Qantas points beyond October, but not status credits. There are now no One World Airlines based in South America, and it doesn't look like there's any real contenders to replace Latam Airlines. The other main uh, carriers in South America, the likes of Avianca or Aerolíneas Argentinas, are already part of an alliance. And the only real contender that looks like it could join One World is perhaps Goal Airlines in Brazil. That's a a regional low-cost carrier based in Brazil that mostly operates domestic flights, although it does have a few routes to other countries in South America, and I believe it also flies to Florida. But yeah, if you're going to be flying to South America in the next uh, little while and you're hoping to fly on One World, there's not going to be a lot of options other than perhaps a Qatar Airways does have a fifth freedom flight between Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo. As it happens, Latam Airlines currently has some outstanding sail fares available between Australia and South America for travel in October and November this year. There's economy flights to Chile available for just $762 return, and business class is under $3,000 round trip. I've never seen business class fares to South America under $3,000. But unfortunately, with so much uncertainty surrounding the current travel restrictions and the border closures, I just cannot recommend that anyone books these fares right now, even if they are record low prices. Flight Center has capped its cancellation fees at $100 per domestic booking and $600 for international bookings of two or more passengers. It comes after the travel agency withdrew widespread criticism for charging $2,100 to a family of seven to cancel a hotel booking that only cost $1,600. This fee had been calculated based on Flight Center's $300 per person cancellation fee for international bookings. This week, the Australian Federation of Travel Agents hit back at what it called errors of fact in mainstream media reports, saying that travel agents are being unfairly blamed in the current landscape and defending the right of travel agents to charge cancellation fees to cover the time and effort involved. Here's a direct quote from the Federation, which says, Travel agents, like everyone else, deserve to be paid for work that they do in situations like this, which are not of their making and which are considerably more convoluted and time-consuming than normal. Paying a small reasonable fee for this work, given the reality of the COVID-19 pandemic, is appropriate recognition of the time travel agents are investing in helping consumers understand what their options are and how best to access them. It comes as the ACCC reminds businesses that they cannot retrospectively change their refund policies due to COVID-19, which a few businesses have tried to do. Last week, STA Travel was fined $14 million by the ACCC for misleading advertising in a case that, believe it or not, has absolutely nothing to do with COVID-19. 
It relates to misleading claims uh, made about the company's Multiflex Plus product between 2014 and 2019. American Express, Platinum and Centurion card holders can earn double points on all transactions until the 20th, 20th of July this year. Qantas frequent flyer members now have the option to get two-factor authentication codes sent via an offline authenticator app rather than relying on text messages or security questions when logging into their accounts. Struggling hotels are now offering work-from-hotel dayroom packages to people struggling to work productively from home. If you can't get to your normal office but you're sick of working from home, perhaps the kids are being really annoying, this could be perfect for you. For as little as $59 per day, you'll have your own private hotel room for an entire day of peace and quiet, where hopefully you'll be able to get some work done productively. Ridges, Atura, and QT Hotels are among those uh, offering the special packages. The WF Hotel at Ridges package, as it's called, comes with the use of a hotel room complete with desk and chairs from 7am to 7pm, and it also includes free tea, coffee, and high-speed Wi-Fi. Room service and a minibar is available for additional charges. Hotel Rome in Canberra is also offering a similar package, which costs $100 per day and can be extended to an overnight stay for an extra $50. Finally, regular listeners to this podcast will know some of the issues that have plagued the opening of the new airport in Berlin. Well, it seems like the new Berlin-Brandenburg Airport will finally open at the end of October. It has now received approval to do so. And the airport operators are convinced that they will actually stick to this date this time. Personally, I'm still sceptical. I'll believe it when I see it. Meanwhile, Berlin's Tegel Airport will temporarily close for June and July this year due to a simple lack of demand. TXL Airport is currently handling just 1% of its usual amount of passengers, which means it's probably handling about the capacity that the airport was designed for in the first place. I'm of course joking, but seriously, that airport is normally operating way beyond its capacity, and if you've ever flown out of one of the sheds there that passes for a terminal, you'll know what I'm talking about. Schönefeld Airport, which is Berlin's second airport, will remain open and operations will be consolidated there from June. That's what's making news this fortnight. For more regular news updates and deals, so do subscribe to the Australian Frequent Fly Gazette or follow us on Facebook. In episode 33 of this podcast, I spoke to Yasmin Azumla, who at the time was stranded in Cusco, Peru, and trying to return to Australia. She was one of hundreds of Australians in a similar situation after the Peruvian government called a nationwide lockdown and banned international flights with just a day's notice. With Australians spread all over Peru, Gus Higgins decided to start a Facebook group, which he called Aussies in Peru, and this proved vital in keeping everyone connected, getting the group's stories uh, heard in Australia, and coordinating the repatriation efforts with the Australian government. And here to tell me about it now is the group's founder, Gus Higgins. Welcome, Gus. Hi, Matt. How are you going? Good. So firstly, Gus, you were one of the Australians that was also stuck in Peru, um, one of several hundred. Where were you when the lockdown struck? So we were staying in Cusco. I had I was about seven or eight days into my Peru trip with my girlfriend who lives in Buenos Aires. Um, we were just on the way back from Aguas Calientes, which is the town below Machu Picchu, um, when my girlfriend got a message saying that Argentina were actually going to ban um, foreigners from coming into the country. 
um, and our plan for our trip had been to finish in Argentina. So instantly we knew that our trip was going to be affected. And then later that night, when we got back to our hotel, the Peruvian president came onto the TV and announced the lockdown for the 15 days initially. Okay, so yeah, I think Yasmin at the time, who I spoke to two episodes ago, was also in Cusco that evening, but she was just about to go to Machu Picchu. So I'm I'm pleased that you at least got to visit, even even though the, the circumstances weren't great. Yeah, yeah, I felt obviously very lucky, but also a little bit guilty because obviously I spoke to many many people who had just arrived in Peru or you know were on, in Lima or were on their way to Machu Picchu. So I definitely felt. Um, blessed that we got to visit Machu Picchu. Yeah. How was it? It was amazing. Yeah. Um, did you we, climb up one of the mountains? Up, yeah, we did Machu Picchu mountain. Um, nice. We, I'd, I'd been through Patagonia with my, with my girlfriend last year and we did a few hikes there and there was a few, uh, I guess, dodgy, uh, parts of that hike that I thought maybe one Picchu might not be for her, <laughs> um, with the supposed, you know, more narrow track and whatnot. So, but yeah, it was amazing. And the, and the view from up the top of uh, Machu Picchu mountain was, was definitely worth the, worth the few hours hike. Absolutely. I've done that as well. That was amazing. Absolutely loved did it. Did you do both? Yeah. Just... Yeah. I visited twice. So the first time yeah. I did Huayna Picchu and the second time I did Machu Picchu, both, both great, but I think Machu Picchu was better. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. If I ever went back, I'd definitely try and do the other one as well, but yeah, definitely wasn't disappointed with, with doing Machu Picchu mountain. Oh, that's great. And so when, when you got back to Cusco, so the lockdown was called, um, you then decided to start a Facebook group to connect all the Australians that were in Peru. Why did you do that? So, I mean, to be honest, from when the lockdown was first announced, we didn't really grasp the extent of it, if I'm being honest. Like the first night that the president announced the lockdown, they it didn't seem too specific to us, at least from the information that we had heard what it was going to affect. We knew that the airports were going to be closed soon, but our plan had been to go out um, of of Peru via land into Bolivia. And so we still weren't sure whether that would still happen in a few days' time with the with the Peru hot buses that we'd booked. Um, obviously, the next morning when we woke up on the 16th, I think it was, everything became a lot more apparent that the lockdown would affect all borders, land, sea and air. And so I think I jumped on the, the Facebook um, the Facebook page for the embassy, which was in Lima. They'd announced, obviously, the, the lockdown as well, but they were also closed, like all other businesses were in, in Lima and around Peru. And a few people started commenting on the posts, saying, you know, are there any other Australians here? Uh, what's happening? Asking for more information from the embassy, and they weren't getting many responses. And so I replied to a few of those comments and asked, hey, has anyone set up a group so we can stay in touch and connected? And, and no one really responded. So I, after a few hours, I created that Facebook chat to start with. Um, a little bit of admin there because there's a lot more people that I thought than I first thought would actually be stuck in Peru, as for Australians in Peru. Um, so there was, it was, there was a lot of messages coming in. Can you add me to the group? You know, are, are you do you work for the government questions like that. Um, but yeah, so it initially just started as a way to, to get everyone connected and start to, to talk and, and understand everyone's situation. I never really anticipated it getting to the numbers that it did. I think in the end, there was about 480 people that registered on the Google form that I set up in the early days. Um, and as we know now, there was over 700 Australians that ended up coming home on the three different repatriation flights that were um, set up and also people made their way home via some other nationalities and dual, dual citizenships as well. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So, so what role did the Facebook group have in helping the cause of you guys? I, th- I mean, obviously it kept us organized. So the, we had the Facebook chat to start with and it became a bit of information overload as the chat grew. And so I decided to start the Facebook page. Um, and what I did was I turned off the commenting on all the posts. And what we basically did was funnel all the information we got into that Facebook page so that anyone that came in knew could just read that Facebook page. We had certain threads like um, locations in Peru, DFAT updates, um, Peruvian government updates because the president was doing an address every day at midday. And one of the guys in our group who's Peruvian Aussie, he was translating them all for us. So as much as it helped us to coordinate and gather the information and promote the fact that we had this Google form, which obviously allowed us to make everyone aware of our situation. It also just gave everyone comfort over the fact that there were so many other Australians in same locations as them. There were many people that were in rural locations obviously as well. And, you know, if you're, you've been to Peru, you know how rural and remote some of those places are. So if you're 10, 20 hours bus ride away from Lima or Cusco with three other people, you're obviously feeling very remote and vulnerable there. So keeping those people in touch and putting those people in touch in the first place um, really gave people comfort and, and kept people calm whilst we waited for that help to arrive. Yeah, and I know, I know Yasmin and, and many others have said that the Facebook group was vital in, I guess, for firstly keeping them sane, but also just the logistics of organizing, getting trying to get 700-odd people back to Australia at a time when international flights are banned. It's, uh, so it's, it's quite remarkable that in the end you were able to get um, mo- most of the people out. Do you know if there are still any Australians that are in Peru and trying to get home? Yeah, I mean, obviously, logistically, um, that was still handled by DFAT and the embassy who used a local partner. But obviously making our situation known and the numbers that were actually in those remote locations. And we, we did feed that information back to DFAT in the early days, gave them access to the Google spreadsheet that we that everyone was um, populating via the form that we promoted. Um, I think uh, we had about we had 483 registered on the on the spreadsheet in the end. And of those, there's about 25 that told me that they wanted to stay in Peru for different reasons. Some people were um, you know, they were midway through a year-long holiday, for example, or they're living there with family or they were doing um, volunteer work somewhere. And so they, I guess they felt, you know, well, I wasn't planning on coming home anyway. I was comfortable, you know, with my few months planned in Peru or in South America. So uh, they just decided to stick it out. There was two or three that I never heard back from. I tried them quite a few times via different channels. Um, and then the, everyone else was was on the flights home, basically. Um, there has been a few, I've been home for now two and a half weeks and there's been two or three people who've messaged me who I hadn't ever actually even spoken to. So some of them had been, you know, in the Amazon and offline for the last few weeks and therefore hadn't even known about the lockdown. They, one guy I spoke to came back online the day before the last flight left from Lima to Brisbane, uh, on the 13th of April. So, you know, obviously a little bit unlucky in that sense, but I did help him sort of. Um, put to, put together a chat. He said there's about eight to ten, maybe as many as thirteen. He's he's waiting to hear back from a few people that are still looking to get home. I think some people in the early days also chose to stay, but then they kind of realised that it might be months rather than weeks now, so they might have changed their mind as well, which is obviously fair enough. So, Gus, do you think that as many Australians would have got out of Peru if technology like Facebook and social media didn't exist yet? 
Definitely not, Matt. I think um, obviously we were using the the Twitter page from the from the ambassador and also the Facebook page from the embassy to get the minimal updates that they were sending through. But there were so many people that reached out to us, either me directly or others in my group, or they were reading the Facebook page. And a lot of those updates they wouldn't have otherwise read. There were people that I was talking to who you know, didn't normally have Facebook accounts and they set one up just so they could see this information. So without that consolidation of information to A, keep people calm, but also keep people organized. I mean, I remember when they had the buses that, that picked everyone up and took everyone to Lima and Cusco in preparation for the flights, the ones that went through the Sacred Valley from from Olentaytambo, which is near Aguas Calientes, um, there were people who we knew were in those locations but hadn't heard anything about being picked up on the bus. And there were some people there who literally with like half an hour's notice were, hey, the bus is here, like are you coming on it? And they, they were replying to people who, who knew that they were in that area saying, I didn't, I didn't, haven't got any word about the bus yet, but they did have a bus ticket. So, sorry, a plane ticket to fly out from Cusco. So yeah, definitely, I think it helped, um, helped me connect people in those locations. You know, we had subgroups for people in, in Huacachina, in Arequipa, in Puno, in Juarez, and those sort of places. And it, it really, by, and then we're talking, you know, five or six people in many of those locations. So it definitely helped them to stay connected and, and make sure that we didn't leave anyone behind because obviously we're in a third world country where a lot of the organization is, is harder and, and the local governments also, or the local councils, I guess you call them, the different districts, um, they obviously have different rules and whatnot. So the bus company was running into all sorts of different different challenges trying to get those people out. Oh, wow. It's quite a remarkable achievement, I think. And it kind of sets a blueprint for what to do in the future if this kind of thing happens. Hopefully this never happens again. But uh, yeah, it's, it's good to know that it was a great help. Uh, now, Gus, there were three charter flights eventually, or repatriation flights, getting Australians back to Australia. There was the Chimo Adventures flight, there was the Latam flight uh, via Santiago to Melbourne, and there was a Qantas flight from Lima to Brisbane. Quite, quite, a, quite an interesting route, actually. Now, which one of those were you on, Gus? I was on the second one. So I flew from Cusco to Santiago on the uh, 8th of April. And there was also a corresponding flight at the same time that went from Lima up north to Iquitos, which is in the Amazon, and then back down to Santiago. Right. We had about, I think it was 19 or so people who were in Iquitos. And I mean, when I first put the list together and then I started looking at the geography of where everyone was, I was most worried for them because you could only fly out from Iquitos, as you probably know. And the, the chance of there being you know, a small charter flight for these 15 to 20 people was quite low. So when, when the government announced that this Latam flight would go from Lima up to Iquitos and then down to Santiago, um, I, was, I was quite relieved that, that they were being flown out via that method. And then everyone who was in Santiago joined onto one, one plane. I think it was about 280 of us that flew from, from Santiago to Melbourne. Okay. Was it like any regular commercial flight? It was relatively normal. You know, we obviously checked into Latam. A lot more uncertainty around things like um, baggage allowances and all that sort of stuff. The government had told us that you were allowed one bag of 23 kilos. I myself travel relatively light. I only, only normally have carry-on, but there were people that I met who had, you know, two or three bags. There was one girl who I ended up checking two bags in under my name for her because she had five bags because she was moving her whole life back to back from Peru to to Australia. Um, so there's a bit of uncertainty about that. But once we I mean, obviously the, the airport was pretty empty as well. 
once we once we checked in, getting onto the flight was pretty seamless. Um, and then we had a bit of a long wait in, in Santiago. The flight from Lima to Iquitos was delayed. They sat on the tarmac in Iquitos for two or three hours, apparently. Um, apparently, there was no staff at the airport to check the people into the plane. Oh, no. Um, yeah, the 15 to 20 people. So, But, you know, I think you've got to expect these sort of things, especially in the situation, um, especially being in South America. So we eventually took off, I think, from Santiago at about 11 p.m. So we had, yeah, six, seven-hour wait um, if you were on the Cusco flight before the Santiago to Melbourne flight took off. Okay, and was was there normal catering and in-flight entertainment, that kind of thing, on the flight to Melbourne? Latam did still have the in-flight entertainment. The catering was heavily reduced. Um, they did sort of two rounds of, uh, they had like a, probably like a roll or like a little sandwich and some biscuits and, and some water, and they would just hand that out in a big plastic bag, obviously, to, to make sure that there was no health concerns there. So... We'd, we'd been warned um, by the Chimu flight people that it was very likely that the in-flight uh, entertainment and also the, the catering might be heavily reduced. Uh, and obviously, Qantas and Latam had been announcing that as well. I think maybe one of your podcasts has spoken about that too. So we, we some of us got the heads up from that. Um, and so people had, you know, stocked up on, on snacks and whatnot um, to get them through to, to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Quant- Qantas has indeed switched off their in-flight entertainment uh, system, yeah. f- I think, since the start of April, um, for no other reason really than to cut costs because they have to pay licensing fees to show the content. And so when most of their planes are grounded, it doesn't really make sense to be incurring those costs. So when you arrived in Melbourne, so obviously in Australia now, when you arrive, you're forced into hotel quarantine for two weeks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, what happened when you arrived? What was the procedure in Melbourne? We landed at 3 a.m. in Melbourne. Um, and straight away the border patrol came on board the plane and basically ran us through what the process would be. So they got people off the plane three rows at a time, and there was probably a good 20 minutes between each three rows. I was in row 21, so I probably waited, you know, what's that, like an hour, an hour and a half maybe um, to actually get off the plane in, in the first instance. And then there was a number of, I guess, checkpoints along the way. Obviously that three rows at a time was designed to space everyone out so you didn't have people queuing but for, for a long time uh, in the airport and obviously the health concerns that come along with that. Uh, so, you know, we, obviously we did the normal um, border checks with our, with our passports and bag pickups and whatnot, but then we also had a health check, another temperature check. Um, we also had like a bit of a brief about which hotel we would be going to and, and uh, how we would be getting there via buses and also uh, health checks as well in terms of uh, any dietary requirements, anything you know that, that we needed to make the Victorian um, government of, aware of uh, to make our stay in the hotels a lot more comfortable, I suppose. Um, from there, we lined up for probably, like once we got through all those checks, they gave us a, a little food pack. It was, you know, it was mostly, it seemed like a bit of a sugar hit sort of thing that was, you know, Tim Tams and uh, Moosey bars and a little a little um, plastic bottle of water and whatnot. So it, it wasn't a lot. I mean, me personally, I, we knew we weren't expecting a lot, but there were a lot of people who, who you know, were obviously feeling a lot, very let down by the amount of food that we were provided uh, along the way. I the, the buses took, I think, about between 12 to 15 people uh, at a time to the hotel. So we, we were taken from Tullamarine to, to Docklands. 
where we stayed at Travel Lodge. Um, the buses would wait around the corner until the bus ahead had been all checked in, again, to keep everyone spaced out. And, and then the bus would pull in front of the hotel and the 12 to 15 of us who were on that bus would go in and, and check in. Um, I probably got to my room at about 7, 7.30 a.m., so four and a half hours after we landed. Um, there were people who were towards the back of the plane that didn't get into the hotel room until well after 11. Were you allowed to leave the hotel room at all during the two weeks then? We weren't on our own accord. So um, when we were first there, we were told... You know, you obviously can't go out. At first, we were told, like, you're not allowed to order any Uber Eats. And, and um, so there was, I think, the, the thing that we realized is that each government, each state government was had slightly different rules because the guys that went on the Chimu flight to Sydney had different rules, again, to the guys that went to Brisbane uh, on the Qantas flight as well. So um, the eventually, a lot of the rules that we were first imposed on us in Victoria got a little bit relaxed. We landed on Easter Friday. And so the first time that we got Woolworths deliveries was on the Monday and the, the food over the weekend was not quite adequate. And so a lot of people obviously ordered up uh, quite high on the, uh, with their Woolworths orders. Um, I probably ordered a little bit too much to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was enough to supplement the food that we got. And then they also started relaxing the, the ability to go out for a walk. It was scheduled, obviously, and it was for 10 minutes only. And they obviously tried to prioritise people who, who were struggling, you know, men mental health-wise or, you know, had had actual medical reasons to need to go outside. So I personally didn't go outside during those two weeks, but um, there were a lot of people who definitely needed it, who I was talking to. They weren't struggling. They weren't coping very well uh, being locked up in the room and not having that fresh air. So... I was, it was good to see that they were able to go outside and the room that I was in had a little a little view of the street and so they, they would go for a walk and I'd stand at the window and wave to them. And so, yeah, it was definitely a strange a strange way to build, you know, some, some very unique friendships. So after your two weeks of hotel quarantine were up, you, you live in Sydney, not Melbourne, so you had to fly back uh, last weekend, I believe. Uh, it must have been an interesting time to fly domestically. Yeah, it was. We um we checked out from the Travel Lodge Hotel on last Friday, and they transferred us to uh, the Holiday Inn at Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, and we spent the night there. So we got to go for well, you know we could go for a walk and that sort of stuff because technically we weren't in quarantine, so we were just subject to the normal state state laws that they have in in Melbourne in Victoria there. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. We got the I think there was four. There's now four flights from from Melbourne each day: um, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, and and Perth, so we got the the one six thirty a.m. Qantas flight back to back to Sydney, and there was obviously, I mean, it was relatively full. They had the middle seats seats uh, blocked out for distancing. Yeah, did you get any catering on the Qantas flight? Uh, we did. We got like a little biscuit and a little water. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, thanks very much, Gus, for telling me about that. We're going to take a quick break now, and after we come back, I'm going to chat to Gus about something completely different. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. Did you know that you can get more from your Australian Frequent Flyer membership by upgrading to Silver or Gold membership? For just $50 a year, Silver members see no advertisements on the vast majority of community forum pages, 
And for only $75 a year, in addition, Gold members can receive discounted travel goods and services valued at over $400 a year, including discounts on Qantas Club, NordVPN, Expert Flyer, and more. Most importantly, by upgrading your Australian Frequent Flyer membership, though, you'll be supporting the website and this podcast. For more information, visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au forward slash upgrade. Welcome back. On today's episode of AFF On Air, I'm joined by Gus Higgins. We were talking just before about coming home from South America, but I want to talk now about something completely different. Gus mentioned to me that he visited the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is more commonly known as North Korea, at the end of 2018. It's an insular country that few of us know much about and even fewer of us will ever visit. So, first of all, why did you want to visit North Korea? it was more of a case of why not to be honest i mean i've always enjoyed going to more unique places and i had a friend from work who had been trying to go to north korea for the last few years before 2018 um he'd been trying to go with a few of his mates from america but obviously they had more trouble getting visas and so i decided to take three months off work to go traveling and it was going to finish in asia and i said to him well you've been trying to go to North Korea. I'm not opposed to going to North Korea. Why don't we go? So we ended up making it happen. Wow. So did it live up to your expectations? Like, was it what you expected it to be or was it quite different? I think it was, it was less strict than I thought it would be. I mean, obviously you've traveled quite a lot too, Matt, but everywhere you go, you always meet people who just want to understand and meet different cultures and, and, and ask you questions about your home country. And, and going to North Korea wasn't too different. Obviously, a lot of the places we went was quite choreographed and you could tell that, you know, we, we were taken here and we were taken there, but it wasn't as restrictive as, as it could be made out to be. I mean, when, when we were in the capital in Pyongyang, staying in, in the one hotel there where everyone stays, like in the basement, they've got bowling alleys, pool tables. Uh, you can get your hair cut there, which me and my mate did. They have karaoke. Everyone's drinking beers. And that's not just the local, the, sorry, not just the tourists. You're there with the tour guides and whatnot, and they're having fun with you. So it was, it was more personable than I thought it would be when they were allowed to be, if that makes sense. Okay, really interesting. So did you go there on a tour? Yeah, I did. So I did a tour with YPT, Young Pioneer Tours. Um, I think they're one of a handful, maybe even two or three now, tour groups that do do tours in North Korea. I believe they're one of the leading ones now in terms of the number of tours that they do. Um, so yeah, their specialty is North Korea, but they're now starting, they've been doing a lot more other tours, you know, around the stands or into Iran, Afghanistan, you know, Eritrea in um, in South, in um, in Africa, um, unique places. That that's their specialty. Mm. So tell me about the tour. So where did you start, and what was the kind of the route that you took? So it was a 10-day, nine-night tour. We, we met in Beijing. So I'd, I just, at the end of my three months, the last 10 days was North Korea. So I'd finished my China, China tour in Beijing. And we met there. We took an overnight train to the northeast of China to a little, little town called Tumen. We had one night there. And then the next morning, we got bussed down to the border. And we literally walked across. Um, we were told that they get about 5,000 Western tourists a year, and I'm guessing like less than 20% of those actually go in via the northeast. Most people go via Beijing, either flying or via train, into Pyongyang. 
Um, so it was it was quite unique. Obviously, first of all, being Australian, it was quite unique to be walking into another country, um, but also to be crossing a bridge into North Korea was quite unique as well. From there, we had um, we had four nights in the northeast province of uh, Hamjong, I think is how you pronounce it, Hamjong, and um, we had two nights in a hotel and also two nights doing a homestay there in uh, near Mount Chulbo, um, which has amazing hiking and amazing views there. We were there in autumn as well, so the the colours were amazing and obviously. Being more of an untouched country, the, there's less industrial industry and all that sort of stuff, so the, the environment's a lot more well kept. From there, we flew to Pyongyang from Orang in the northeast. Um, that was on Air Kurayo, which is the, the North Korean carrier, which is relatively infamous, obviously, for, for the unique planes that they have. We flew on a, a Tupolev, a Russian trijet plane, which obviously left over from the, the USSR Soviet, Soviet era. Um, and we had, I think we had four nights in, in Pyongyang after that. Oh, wow. Okay. So what was the process of getting a visa for North Korea and what were the border checks like when you, when you walked over the border into North Korea? The visas were largely organized by YPT. So that was part of the cost of the tour. Um, so, you know, if anyone's been to, for example, Russia is probably a good comparison in terms of giving your, you know, the history of where you've traveled and, and you know employment history and why you're traveling there and who's sponsoring you when you get there those those sort of normal checks that, that anyone who's traveled to more remote places w- would know about um once we actually got to the border it wasn't too bad i mean obviously everything's organized by ypt as i mentioned but then they liaise with the local tour company as well that picks you up as soon as you cross the border and they obviously help make sure everything gets streamlined they did check for you know, any sort of religious material that we might be carrying in, obviously being quite a secular country and, and um, any, any devices that we had, they would check what devices we had going in and, and what devices we were taking going out. Um, that was the idea anyway, but we didn't cross the same border. And I, I don't know that they actually checked against everybody, uh, you know, the, the inventory they took when we checked in, uh, the same inventory when we checked out. But that was the thought behind it, we were told. So it was relatively smooth, though. Um, we probably it probably took no longer than an hour to get all sixteen of us through through immigration. Okay, did you need to um, exchange foreign currency? Like, did you get any of the North Korean local currency? We didn't need to. So um, they use uh, renminbi, the Chinese yuan. Um, but we did go to a market. I think it's actually illegal now. I'm thinking back for us to use the local currency, but there is one market. Where we, in Pyongyang, where we could go and exchange local currency and actually uh, use it in the market, just to kind of experience being a local. And of course, you know, you're not you're supposed to exchange it all back and not not take any out. But I definitely know people who you know snuck a bit out just as a bit of a souvenir. <laughs> I actually have one as a souvenir. A friend of mine gave it to me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I collected quite a few of those notes. Uh, I think I got all but two or three of them. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's a unique souvenir for sure. Uh, you mentioned that you flew on a domestic flight on Air Corio, which is probably the world's only one-star airline, um, as you say, flying very old planes. Um, yeah. Yeah, what was that experience like? And did you get the the infamous mystery burger on your flight? 
I didn't actually. So we were told a lot about that, but apparently it's very hit and miss when they serve it, and especially on the domestic flight. So we didn't actually experience having that burger. We were told that it's supposed to be pork, but obviously there's a lot of uh, a lot of mystery, as you mentioned, around what the <laughs> contents is. And judging from the photos I've seen, it's very um very suspect the type of pork. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. So. We, the check-in was all fine, like you know, pretty much like any other normal airport that you would go to. Obviously, it's a lot more smaller and picture something that looks very, very Soviet um, in its in its demeanor. But I remember I got given seat. I don't know. Let's. I think it was like 26E or whatever it was. And I remember walking to the back of the plane, and the row stopped at 24. And I'm thinking, okay, so we asked the flight attendant. Obviously, there's no English, and they kind of looked at the ticket and they went, oh, okay, come up to the front, and they just put us in row seven. And we were like, okay, whatever. So we sat down and we take off and I look around and there's people standing like in between like the little gaps between the seats. Like as in, you know, you have 10 seats and then, and then obviously the partition in between and whatnot where the toilets might be or whatever. And there's people standing there and I'm thinking, what's going on? Anyway, we spoke to our guide later and he told us that they'd swapped planes to a smaller plane. And as a result, there was less seats than what they'd printed out. No way. And so on. Okay, so so that explains why people were standing. But I felt a little bit bad being a tourist, and there were these locals that were flying that were that were standing. I mean, obviously it's not a big plane either, being twenty four rows, um, and I think it was three three configuration. So, but yeah, very very old plane. Um, you know, anything that you've watched, I don't know. It reminded me of like um, thinking back to like Mad Men or any of those sort of TV shows where you see people flying there, you know, people are smoking and all those sort of things. It was a massive throwback to, to, you know, the, the Soviet era, I guess, which is where the plane was from. Um, and other unique things like the seats folded down if you weren't sitting in them and yeah, just a very unique experience with that type of, with that type of airplane. Wow. So let me get this straight. They boarded more people onto the plane than they had seats available. So people just stood for the flight. Yeah, when you say it like that, obviously it sounds very dangerous as well. But yeah, that's standing now. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> if you did have a delay um, before the plane came, and then when we actually boarded, as I just explained, all that happened, and later on it was explained to me that that was the reason. So we made it safe. So I guess you know they didn't try and offload anyone. No, they didn't. As far as I knew, I mean, they may have that we didn't see. I'm not sure. Wow, unbelievable! Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Maybe that's where the one star comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was because of the mystery burger, but there you go. <laughs> so who else was in your tour group? So there was 16 in total. I think there was about six Aussies. There was two people from Sweden, two Germans. There was four or so from United Kingdom. Uh, I think there was one Scottish guy and a couple of English guys. Uh, one Portuguese one Canadian, and there was one South Korean guy as well. He, he was traveling on his Canadian passport, but he was born in South Korea, so obviously speaks Korean, so could converse with, with all the locals as well. Ah, interesting. So what, what for you was the highlight of the trip? I'd probably say between the homestay and the, the mass games that we went to. So I don't, I don't know if you've heard about the mass games, but it's this massive oh, yeah. that they put on. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a 
massive part of their culture and they have there's a stadium in Pyongyang which is supposed to seat about 150,000 reportedly um they blocked off about a quarter of it because they had something like 17,000 um school students that all sit in the in the stadium and they all have like different cards that they hold up which depicts pictures or colors or whatnot and it coordinates with the massive spectacle that's happening on the on the main oval um but it was i mean people had told me about you know how amazing it, how amazingly well choreographed it is it's supposed to have about a hundred thousand performers across the whole uh i think it was about an hour and a half and just like i can't remember the last time that i was so fixated on something for an hour and a half straight like it was you couldn't take your eyes off it like the emotion that they that they brought out through the performance whether it was about you know um kim jong-il or kim il-sung their founder or um, you know, just a lot of the cultural references to the important places where these people were born or lived or grew up. or And a lot of them are all just school students, school kids as well, like people as young as, I'm guessing, under 10, under 10 years of age. Um, so just how well choreographed it was. And 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 they they finished it with, with a bit about um, about the, you know, bringing North and South Korea back together and reunification. Um, just before we... We'd visited. They Trump had had that visit with the with Kim Jong Un um, in in Singapore, and so that was a big theme of that as well. And th- throughout the whole trip, I did get the sense that they did want to reunify, but I don't think they really understand what that means on a global sense. Um, so there was that definitely, you know, um, under underlying theme that they knew that they wanted to, but how they were going to get there, I don't think they they quite understood. Mm. Okay. So what were the people like that you met, just the, the local everyday people? Were they just generally happy, normal people living everyday lives? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, obviously, we saw a lot of poverty, especially in the Northeast, but that's to be expected. Um, but like, as I said, the people that we did uh, you know, have the privilege to be able to talk to and actually get to know, especially our guides, obviously, well, A, we're bringing, a, bringing money into the economy and, and a job for them. But they were just so inquisitive about, you know, where we'd come from, our culture and, and, and you know, our reasons for traveling. We did a few school visits as well, which was quite, quite uh, revealing, I guess, because seeing what the students are being taught is obviously an indication of, you know, where they want to take their country and, mm. and seeing it through more innocent eyes of school kids. Um, seems like things like, you know, engineering and space exploration is obviously quite high up on their agenda um, given how close space exploration is to military endeavors and whatnot. But, you know, we went to English classes and, you know, I was paired with two students who would have been, you know, 10 and 15 sort of thing. And, and you know, I would talk about my home life and my family and, and all that and all that sort of thing. And it was just, it was really rewarding to kind of get to know them. And they were, they were just inquisitive, like, like lots of people are around the world about different cultures. Wow. Did you, did you feel like the school visit was kind of staged and controlled? A little bit. I mean, that's obviously the theme across the whole trip, right? I'm not naive enough to think that we, you know, we had free reign. But, you know, when we were talking one-on-one with these students, there was a teacher kind of walking around, but they weren't controlling what we spoke about or, you know, there was nothing There was nothing controlled about our conversations. It was more just what we were seeing and, you know, I'm assuming that they wouldn't be putting any, any students in there that were going to ask anything too crazy or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. 
Now, I, know, I know that many visitors to North Korea talk about that constant surveillance and like just, they're just in general, there being rules about what you can and can't do, what you can photograph, where you can go, that kind of thing. And of course, we've also seen stories like the case of Otto Vambier, the American tourist that was charged with allegedly stealing a propaganda poster who later died. Did you feel like you were, uh, you know, constantly being watched? I didn't, to be honest, and that was probably one of the more surprising things, given what you read in the media. I mean, we had like there was general rules, like you know, you can't take photos of things that will that could be construed as you know North Korea being very poor and sort of you know pushing that sort of agenda, and you couldn't video anyone anyone who was you know military um, in, in any military attire. Or when we went to the statues of Kim Il, Kim Jong Un or any of his his father or grandfather, you had to make sure you took a photo of the whole the whole presentation of the of the uh, statue not just you know one part of it and it's it's all just you know they're obviously trying to control the image and control the perception but if you did take a photo accidentally of something that you weren't supposed to most of the time we were just asked hey can you just delete that if they even saw it um and you know there was no no one got in more trouble than just asking them to not to do that again that i saw did you want to say anything about otto we stayed in the same hotel room as him. Uh, as sorry, the same hotel. Sorry, not hotel room. Obviously, well, maybe I did. I don't know. But the same hotel as him in, in Pyongyang, because all the tourists stay in the same hotel. And reportedly, it was level five of that hotel that was where he uh, got caught stealing this poster. Apparently, but it was very obvious to us and very clear. A when we checked in that we weren't supposed to go on level five because it's for TV broadcasts and media relations and whatnot. Uh, and also when you get in the lift, it clearly says, do not go to level five, etc." So obviously how he was treated and his death is horrible and shouldn't have happened. But at the same time, if you operate within the, you know, the confines of the, of the rules that you are given, knowing that you're going to North Korea, um, it was pretty easily avoidable as is evident because they do tours every year, uh, multiple, multiple tours. And, and there isn't any other reports like this. Mm. I know that some would say that they don't want to visit North Korea um, simply because they don't want to financially support what they would call a despotic regime. Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, it was definitely a consideration for me as well. Um, and I was even more conscious of it once we got there because obviously there were a lot of things that we could buy, whether it just be, you know, at the local supermarket or whether it be souvenirs and whatnot. I did buy one propaganda poster that was... Um, just about space travel because I liked it artistically, but also I just thought it would be nice to have some sort of keepsake, but I was conscious about not spending too much. Obviously the majority of the money, probably not the majority, but say, you know, 75%, whatever it is goes towards the, the travel industry, the tourism industry in North Korea as well, which is obviously all state owned. So there's no denying that a lot of the money that we spent would have gone to the, towards that. Um, At the same time, I felt like I had to balance it with the fact that, we were giving people jobs. We were opening people's, you know, broadening people's minds in terms of bringing other cultures to to the country that they wouldn't otherwise have any exposure to, because obviously it's very very controlled what they see and what what's on the news and whatnot. So, yeah, obviously, traveling to these more unique places comes with with a trade off, um, which I was obviously comfortable with, but I can totally understand and, and see how other people might not be comfortable with that. Yeah, fair enough. Now, finally, would you would you visit again, or would you recommend that your friends and family visit? I, I would. I, obviously, I would pick and choose which friends or family I recommend to go there, depending on how adventurous they are. But I would definitely visit again. But I would like to do it 
you know, let enough time pass to, to hopefully it's changed quite a lot. Similar to going to a place like Cuba. I went to Cuba in 2015. I'd love to go back in like, I don't know, say 2025 when it's 10 years later and to see how much has changed. So yeah. I know that they've got some goals in place to have, for example, one Olympics team by 2030 or whatever the date is. So things like that, if some of those sort of tick boxes, I suppose, start getting checked, it will mean that the reunification is starting to happen. So it could be very interesting to go back and just see how much it's changed. Um, obviously, people are going to be, you know, object, opposed to going there and wouldn't even consider going there. I mean, I didn't even tell my mum at first that I was going there, which was a common th- story that I heard people just saying that they were going to the northeast of, northeast of China um, and that they'd be offline for, for a week or two. Um, but, yeah, I definitely would visit it again and it would be awesome to go back and see how much it has changed in the future. Oh, fascinating. Well, Gus, thank you so much for joining me on the AFF On Air podcast. It's been really interesting to hear about your troubles. Thanks, Matt. Thanks heaps for having me on. That's it for another episode of AFF On Air. Thank you so much for listening. Are you thinking about taking a trip to North Korea now, perhaps? If you have a question that you would like me to answer on a future episode of this podcast, you can ask it, as always, on the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum which is linked in the episode notes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, of course, do also subscribe. By rating and uh, leaving a review, this would really help us to spread the word about this podcast. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back in another two weeks with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, stay safe. Stay safe.